Would you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7? We'll be looking at verses 2 to 16 this morning. I want to thank Pastor Jim for sharing last week from the Scripture. I listened to the message, and I just thought he did a great job with the text that's previous to this. Uh, Gail and I were enjoying some uh, grandson time, you know, baby time. It's kind of fun. We went down to see our kids down at Trinity and uh, spent some time with the grandkids, and that's always a real joy. I'd like to read this passage of Scripture for us this morning and then pray, and then we'll begin. Listen to this, what Paul writes in Second Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So that even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these words of Scripture this morning, And we think about the challenge that is involved in relationships, both the joys and the risks. Would you help us to see how this passage applies to us, to our relationships, and to the church today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I was reading through Reader's Digest magazine. It's the February edition. And there was an article in there that was called, How to Succeed at Life. How to Succeed at Life. 
It was written by a man named Clayton Christensen. He teaches economics at Harvard. He teaches management theory, which can sound kind of dry to, but to a guy who was former economist. It was pretty interesting to read. And what he does in this class is he has his students look at different companies and, and kind of analyze why they either succeeded or failed and look at the culture that was established there. And then at the end of the class, he wants them to apply those same principles to life. And he asks his students three questions that I think are very interesting. So number one, how can I be sure that I will be happy in my career? How can I be sure that I'll be happy in my career? Number two, how can I be sure that my relationship with my spouse and children will be an enduring source of happiness? So how can I be sure my relationship with my spouse and children will become an enduring source of happiness? And thirdly, how can I be sure I'll stay out of jail? <laughs> now that last one, how can I be sure I'll stay out of jail, may sound kind of funny, but he said in my Rhodes Scholar class of 32 people, there have already been two people that have spent time in jail, including Jeffrey Skilling, who was part of the Enron scandal that took place. He said, you know, I want, he wants his students to think about these things because he said, I graduated personally in 1979, and over the years, as I've gone back to class reunions, I've seen more and more of my fellow classmates who come back unhappy, divorced, alienated from their children, and frustrated and disappointed with life. It's not at all what they had set out to do or what they had planned for in their life. I mean, nobody graduates from college or Harvard Business School thinking, okay, I'm going to make a mess of my life and I'm going to ruin my marriage and I'm going to be, you know, uh, separated from all of my children and that's the goal of life. Not at all. He said what these individuals have forgotten is they have forgotten to keep the purpose of their life front and center. And for this individual... Clayton Christensen writes that my purpose in life comes out of my deep faith in God. And he shares that with the class. I thought that was very interesting. You know, as, as our sons grew up in our home, you know, I would talk to them often about the importance of relationships. And I would tell them, in fact, about 90% of life's happiness is going to be tied up in your relationships. And a large part of that is going to be tied up in who you marry, so choose wisely. And follow God's will for your life in that area. Let Him direct and guide because He has a plan for your life. I think of a number of years ago, remember the comedian Johnny Carson? He made this observation on his own life. He said, you know, if I had worked as hard at my marriage as I did at my career... I'd probably still be married. He shared the disappointments and hurts in his life, and he had poured everything into his career, and he had neglected the things at home. But where does most of our happiness come from? Again, it comes from our relationships, and in particular, our relationship within the family. Relationships are important. They are the source of our greatest joys, but admittedly, they are also risky. There are hurts and disappointments that can come in relationships. And some of you have been hurt very deeply by a family member or in a marriage or in a friendship. 
Some of you may have been abused as a child. Some of you may have been in a marriage where your spouse walked away or it ended in a messy divorce and you were hurt. I understand what that's like. Sometimes it even happens in the church where people give up on the church because they were part of a congregation where there was some in-house fighting or maybe a church split and they said, if that's the way Christians act, you know, then I don't want anything to do with that. But those events in our life should not cause us to give up on marriage or family or our children or the church. Instead, they really should highlight the importance of building a relationship on a strong foundation. I know it takes two people to make a marriage work and be healthy. And it also takes individuals who are willing to apply the principles of God's Word to life. And that's what I want to talk about today. The Apostle Paul had been deeply hurt in his relationship with the Corinthians. He had been falsely accused. He had been slandered by them, by some individuals within the church. But Paul did not give up on his relationship with them, and he didn't give up on the church. Instead, he chose to work through those hurts. And in this passage, what I see are four ingredients that are important for healthy relationships. And we're going to talk about those things today. And I hope that you will see and make the application to your own relationships as a result. Number one is honest communication. And we see that in verses 2 to 4. One of the risks in relationships is misunderstanding. You may say one thing, somebody else hears something different. And there's confusion or there's a misinterpretation. And those things need to be worked through. But it's even worse when someone is spreading rumors or false accusations like what's happening here. Paul was accused of being dishonest as though he were deceiving the church or trying to take advantage of some of the people. It was slander. It was the exact opposite of the way that Paul felt about the Corinthians. And so how did Paul deal with that? Well, he couldn't be there in person initially, so he addressed those issues in a letter. And what we read here in verse 2 is where he says, Make room for us in your hearts. Open your hearts to us. And he speaks to those accusations, and he makes these three statements. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, and we have exploited no one. He has not been deceitful in his relationship with them. He has been honest. He has been faithful in that. And he goes on to assure them of his love. He says, I would say to you that we have such a place in our hearts for you that we would live or die with you. I mean, we love you. We care that much that we would live or we would give our life for you. In fact, I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you, and I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. He answers the charges directly, and he assures them of his love and his joy in their relationship. You see, what we see in Paul is this willingness to deal with an issue directly. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't kind of ignore it and hope it'll get better and go away. He deals with it directly. And I want to tell you, honest communication is so important 
in a healthy relationship where we need to do that over and over again. In the premarital counseling that I do with couples when they come in wanting to get married, we stress communication and conflict resolution. It's very important to understand how to communicate clearly, to take the time to talk, and then also how to deal with difficulties when they come up. And I use this quote from Norman Wright who said that communication is to love what blood is to life. Communication is to love what blood is to life. It's pretty hard to live without either of those, isn't it? And I don't know if you've ever thought about it quite that way, but if you're going to have a good relationship, you need to be able to talk about things. You can overcome just about anything in a relationship if you are willing to talk about the problems and come up with a solution. It's when people stop talking that the relationship dies. How is it going for you in your marriage, in your relationship with your children, in your relationships at work, maybe it's with an employer or a co-worker? Are there some issues where it would be good for you to sit down and just say, could we talk about these things? And put it on the table and be honest and work things through with understanding and open those lines of communication once again. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day. Maybe it's a good time as a couple to go out and to have a meal and to sit down and talk and begin to establish some things that you want to do in your marriage relationship. Honest communication is important if we are to have healthy relationships. Secondly, there is to be mutual concern in a relationship. When you look in verses 5 to 7, we see how Paul was concerned about the Corinthians, but he wasn't so sure how they felt about him. He's saying, we love you, we have opened our hearts to you, we want to have this relationship that's good. But he had not yet heard about them until Titus returned and brought this report. And so Paul picks up where he left off in this letter in chapter 2, verse 13, where uh, he you know, was describing there how he had uh, heard about the difficulties at Corinth, and so he had gone to Troas hoping to meet Titus. Titus wasn't there. Paul has this great ministry that's going on. It's like this wonderful opportunity to share the gospel. But he's so torn up on the inside that he can't stay. He goes to Macedonia, crosses the Aegean, goes over to the Greek side of the peninsula, And there he waits. Titus isn't there yet, but eventually he comes. And when he comes, he brings this good report that just causes Paul to rejoice. And I love the way that Paul tells it. You know, he says, When we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. We were harassed at every turn. There were conflicts on the outside and fears within. He's got difficulties going on without. He's got the anxiousness on the inside. And what happens? He says, but God, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. God stepped in. I love that. He, He looks at God as the source of his strength and the source of his joy. And how did God comfort Paul in this situation? He did it by bringing an old friend, Titus, who came. They were reunited, Titus, his co-worker and friend. And also, he encouraged Paul by the news that he brought from Corinth that told of their love and concern. 
And so here's Paul. Can you imagine the relief he felt, the joy that came to his heart when he heard that these guys had responded to his letter, they were excited, they wanted to see Paul, and they were addressing the situations that had come up in the church. It couldn't have been any better news. And Paul writes that my joy was greater than ever. You know, when you think about relationships, joys and risks, when relationships are not going well and there's tension or there's a hurt or there's an issue that needs to be dealt with, it weighs on our mind. We feel like Paul with the anxiousness within. You know, if we're not right with our spouse, boy, it's tough and and you want to work that through. Or if there's an estrangement with one of your children and you feel like there's been uh, tension in the relationship or a separation, you want to work that through. But when those relationships are good and there is love and affection, mutual concern, it's just the greatest thing. We have great joy. You know, and I think of how even little things can make a big difference to people in the relationships that we've had. Gail and I have both had recently situations in our work and also with people we know in the community to kind of pick up on some needs in their life, and I won't share the details of those situations. But it's been interesting how as we've become aware of a need, both of us have taken the opportunity to write a note to that individual. And just say, I know it's been a tough year for you, or I know that you're going through some struggles right now, and I just want you to know that I I appreciate you, I am praying for you, and, you know, just being available, but just saying that we are here and we are praying and we're aware of what's going on. I tell you, both of those individuals have come back to us, and these are separate situations, you know, but it's been really neat to see how meaningful that was to the person just to know somebody heard, somebody was aware of their needs or situation and cared enough to pray. It didn't take long to do that, you know, just a couple minutes to jot out a note and leave it for the person. But even those simple things can make a difference in someone's life. And I want to encourage you, you know, when we talk about mutual concern here for other people, we don't want to leave that unspoken. It's important for us to really say that, otherwise people don't really know where they stand or know if anyone cares or notices what's going on in their life. Within our church, one of the core values that we have is loving relationships. We believe that people grow best in the context of loving relationships. And in fact, it was Jesus himself who said that love is to be the distinguishing mark of the church. You can think about it like this. It's as though Jesus said, I am giving permission to the world around us to judge the church by this standard. Do you love one another? Francis Schaeffer called it the final apologetic, the greatest evidence that there is, that the gospel is real, is to be our love for one another in relationships. And so it is really important that we work at that, that we demonstrate that. How do you measure it? You know, how do you measure love and concern? Well, you see it in terms of healthy interaction between people. You see it in in how much people enjoy getting together as a pastor. I love Sunday mornings when I see all of the conversations that are going on in the foyer between church and after church. 
I see people who don't want to leave, who hang around and are still talking or connecting, and I go, you know what, that's a really good sign. It's healthy. It's the kind of thing you want to see happen, that people enjoy getting together here and at other times throughout the week. Now, there's a, ch- there's a risk involved in that. There's a risk involved in getting close to other people. I mean, it requires an openness and honesty on our part to share what's going on in our life. There needs to be a willingness to get close to people and a willingness to also serve and help others. Because we're not just to be takers, we are to be givers as well. And that's why we encourage people to get involved in an ABF, an adult Bible fellowship, or a small group, or meet with other people for prayer during the week. People who can know what's going on in your life and be an encouragement to you. And if you don't have those kind of relationships yet with someone in the church or with other friends that are Christians, maybe it's at your place of work, I would encourage you to establish that kind of relationship. Take the risk, take the step of faith, and you will experience the joy that comes out of those kind of friendships. Thirdly, forgiveness is an important part of healthy relationships because we are sinners and there are going to be times when we need to deal with things and ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness can be defined this way. It's the willingness to give up resentment against someone or the desire to punish and to stop being angry with someone. We work through the hurt, we let go of that, we bring it to God, or we talk with the other person and we say, I forgive you, or would you forgive me? It goes back to chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul is addressing this issue that's come up in the church where someone had offended him, and he forgives them. And he puts it in the context of the church because the situation spilled over where it wasn't just personal, it was affecting everybody in the church. And he goes, if you have forgiven anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. I want you to know, I have forgiven them. I don't want this to be a hindrance to fellowship in the church at Corinth. And so Paul uses himself here as an example to encourage them to do the same. And then he talks about what was going on at Corinth and how hard it was for him to write the letter that he did. Most of the commentators believe that there was a second letter that comes between these two that is called the severe letter. It is lost. We don't have that anymore. But in that letter, he had addressed these issues very pointedly in what they should do. Well, it's never easy to confront a person with their sin. And so Paul says, you know, if I caused you sorrow by my letter, you know, on the one side, I'm sorry I did that. I regretted the hurt that it caused. But on the other side, I don't regret it because of how God used it in their life. You see, it's risky to speak the truth in love, but it is necessary if we are going to deal with sin. And sometimes we may see a brother or a sister who's fallen away from the church or who's kind of wandered away and they've fallen into sin and they're dealing with stuff in their life that really they know better than to be doing. And as a brother or sister in Christ, what should we do? Well, we pray for them. Obviously, we do that and we ask God to work in their life. But if we are a close friend or we have a healthy enough relationship where we can go to them, boy, 
It's really an opportunity for us to show love, to take a risk, step out in faith, and talk about what's going on and what you see. And what a joy it is when God uses that to bring someone back into a closer relationship with Christ. Again, in a recent situation that you could ask Gail and I as we were talking about that, there was a situation where Gail was reaching out to a friend, and the friend responded back to what was said and said, you know what, I don't have anybody else like you in my life who would take that risk, take that step of faith, to talk about an issue that was very real and encourage them to come back into a relationship with Christ. We need that, don't we? We need those times, those situations where people in our life who can hold us accountable and encourage us. It is so important. What we see here is that in response to this letter, they became sorrowful as God intended. They responded to the message and they repented. And in repentance, there is a change of mind and action. And you can see in verse 11, there were seven things that they did in response to this letter. Paul said he saw in them this earnestness, eagerness to clear themselves, indignation, alarm, longing, a concern, readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in the matter. They didn't just hear it, they responded to the message. And they changed. That's true repentance. And let me just put this up for you briefly, the difference that is highlighted here between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And go ahead and put it all up there, all of the points, uh, because of the time here. And you can see in this passage, I mean, go back. (laughs) That was too quick. (laughs) If you can go back to the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, Uh, This could be a whole other message, but you see how godly sorrow is concerned with God and what God thinks about it, and it's concerned with pleasing Him. Whereas in worldly sorrow, people are concerned about themselves, about their appearance, about, you know, what are others going to think about them, and so it gets into this kind of image management kind of situation. Or I've seen people who, you know, play the role of the victim and want to blame everybody else instead of honestly looking at themselves. In godly sorrow, there is repentance where people are sorry for what they did. They admit that it was wrong or the hurt or offense that it caused. Whereas in worldly sorrow, people are just regretting that they got caught. I mean, they're sorry they got caught. And with godly sorrow, there is a definite change in attitude and behavior, whereas in worldly sorrow, there is little or no change, or what little change there is is only because of force, or maybe they got in trouble with the law and they had to change or they had to make restitution. I mean, you see these things all the time, whether it's political figures or businessmen who have acted and broken the law, And then you see how they try to work the system and to get out of situations rather than admitting their guilt. Godly sorrow leads to life. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Like I said, it's a very good description of those two things. And boy, we want to be on the side that is honest about our sin and what's going on in our life. That we might be humble before the Lord and experience real change and growth when we sin. And finally, in the last point, it's uh, the need for trust in a relationship. Again, trust is a firm belief or confidence in the honesty, integrity, reliability, justice, and love of the other person. 
When you look at our relationships, they are all built on trust if they are going to succeed. And Paul will say in this passage two times, he says of the Corinthians, that I have confidence in you, I trust you. In verse 4, he said, I have great confidence in you. And in verse 16, he said, I am glad that I can have complete confidence in you. I trust you. That kind of relationship of trust takes time to build. And we've seen that, you know, whether it's with our children or in our marriage, it takes time where through our deeds, through our actions and love, we prove that we are trustworthy. It's absolutely essential to a relationship if we are going to weather the storms that will come. A wife needs to know that she can trust her husband that he will be faithful to her and vice versa. A parent needs to know that they can trust their children, that if there is ever a time when their uh, character is questioned in the future, they can go to their child and say, you know, son, or to your daughter, say, will you tell me what happened in this situation? And you can believe that what they are telling is the truth because over time you have built that relationship of trust. I know I'm running out of time here, so I'm just going to tie this together quickly. We've looked at four ingredients here that are necessary for a good relationship. Honest communication, mutual concern or love, forgiveness, and with that comes reconciliation, and trust. And here's the question I'd ask you. Are those qualities present in your relationships? Are those things true of the relationships that you have in your home or with your spouse or with your friends? and in the church. And our desire would be that we would work at that, that we would build those kind of qualities into all of the friendships that we have for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, again, thank you for your word. It is just so practical. It touches all areas of life, and especially relationships. Father, we want our relationships in the body of Christ in this church to be healthy and loving and growing. And we want that in our families and in our place of work. So, Lord, would you do the application today and bring to mind those situations where we could use some work and where maybe we need to address an issue or say, would you forgive me? And then give us the courage to take the action we need. In Jesus' name, amen.